episode 45 of the Tactical Breakdown podcast. Today we're talking about the gift of fear. Here we go. Welcome to the Tactical Breakdown. A podcast for law enforcement, military, and emergency response professionals. Where we help you bridge the gap and talk training, tactics, and leadership with the best subject matter experts in the world. Here is your host, Adam Kanakin. Welcome back to Tactical Breakdown. This is episode 45. I'm going to throw this right out there. If you're not already subscribed to the podcast, you better get on it. If you're in law enforcement and you're a trainer, you have to be part of this, part of what we're doing. Um, if you're in law enforcement in general and you're not a trainer, you still should be here. And you still should be subscribed because the amount of knowledge that's being thrown out by our guests is just phenomenal. And uh, I'm honored every single day that I get to put a new episode out there for you. So make sure to support us by just supporting the podcast and subscribing to us. You can do that on any of your favorite podcast players. And um, so today, episode 45, I have with me one of our speakers that was on the International Law Enforcement Training Summit, Mr. James Hamilton. James is a senior vice president for Gavin DeBecker and Associates and was a former supervisory special agent of the FBI. The amount of knowledge and, and experience that this gentleman has is unrivaled. And uh, I just I love this conversation and uh, can't wait to work with James more in the future. So without any further ado, I'm going to let you in on this conversation I have with James. Here we go. All right. I got James on the line. James, thanks for taking the time today, my man. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Adam. I appreciate it. You know, it's really funny. Just before we hit record here, we were talking about uh, close protection and, and working in Canada because I know uh, Gavin Becker and Associates is uh, located down in the United States and, and a lot of what you guys do is in the U.S., but you also work internationally. And I know you personally have experience uh, from your law enforcement background where you've worked internationally. And it's really interesting to me because when we talk close protection, so many people have this idea that it's it's like the Secret Service agents with the, the weapons, the firearms, all this equipment and training. Um, and that's not necessarily the case. Can we can we kind of talk about the difference when we're talking about this work around the world? Like, why is it so different in the U.S. as it is everywhere else? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and I love to talk about it. I mean, in the U.S., and, and that's where, you know, I'm going to have to come from because that's that's my whole background. And we we are very much a gun culture, right? I mean, I'm from the South and, and in the South, you know, you, you remember distinctly when you got your first pistol. You know, I was 16. I got a Colt Mark IV Series 70 uh, for my 16th birthday. I mean, and pistols have just been part of your life. And then when you get in law enforcement, you know, that's it. You know, it's guns, guns, guns. And then I got the FBI. Uh, all of our close protection guys and girls were, were SWAT. You had to be on the SWAT team to be in a close protection team. And so, you know, SWAT is special weapons and tactics. So we were really into guns. And, you know, when I got, uh, I was on the FBI director's detail and we had some of the finest equipment you could, you could imagine. And, uh, you know, when you started working overseas, uh, you know, it's a rude awakening and I got hit in the face pretty good in, in Canada, you know, rhetorically hit in the face, but truthfully I was in Canada and they said no guns. And I was like, what are you talking about? And, um, what happens is, is you have you realize very, very quickly that maybe you're overly dependent on one tool. That's that's why you see that. And then in the private sector, you know, where I am now, um, one thing I've really learned is that if you have to use your firearm in a private sector executive protection, you basically the the, the whole mission has failed, and um, it, it's really, really not part of. Um, you know, what I'm thinking about when I'm planning uh, an EP mission uh, from the private sector side. And, and you know, you got to get people to think that way. And it's a lot different. The reality is, and as I kind of alluded to uh, in our conversation and what I teach in, in our school is that, you know, at least in America, um, it has never happened where an executive protection agent or, you know, Secret Service agent or FBI has preemptively stopped an attack with their firearm. It's never happened. Now, there's been a lot of shooting after the fact, but n nothing before. So if you thinking going to the gun is going to stop it, you're probably uh, actually wasting time. And time's the one thing you have none of, you know, in these situations. So it's definitely different. Um, 
nothing wrong with guns. I, I love them, but it's really probably not the first tool that I'm, I'm looking for um, when it comes to it's definitely civilian EP in America. You know, it's I've had a lot of really interesting conversations centering around this topic, and a lot of it has come from um, and and obviously this, <laughs> I try to stick away from the politics and all that kind of stuff in the podcast. But I mean, obviously, with the Second Amendment things that are happening in the United States, um, you know, I've been asked, like, what is you know, what are your thoughts on it? And it's interesting. And and guys from the U.S., especially uh, that are in that gun culture, are kind of always taken back when I say, listen, I, you know. I would never rely on a firearm anyway. I mean, the, the, I was always trained that my number one weapon is in bet- between my ears. That's right. So just if you, your, your whole goal should always be to avoid conflict or to, uh, to preemptively, you know, get out of a situation before it happens. You know, we always say in security, like if, if people are asking what you're doing that, like, it seems like you're not doing anything, then you're doing your job correctly. Right. It's like Jeff Cooper. And, you know, I always talk about Jeff Cooper and he talks about the, you know, it's what's between your ears. That's not, not what's in your hands. That's not the weapon. It's what's between your ears. Um, you know, Jeff Cooper ran gun site for years, very famous guy here in the States. Um, and, and you're exactly right. When I see, for instance, and, and I, nothing against anyone who's listening that does this type of training, but when I watch some type of EP school and they're like shooting from the, you know, from in the car, you know, at a target, I, I always want to ask the question, you know, well, what's wrong with the car? Okay. Because you should be getting on the gas and driving the hell out of there, right? Because if you're having an engagement, Right. And let's just assume your principal's in the back seat. Well, you're taking fire and giving fire. What I always say is you put your principal in the worst position you possibly could. Right. They're, they're in an environment where hot rounds are coming through that car. Uh, this isn't TV. You know, rounds rip right through, as you know, they rip right through fiberglass and glass. I mean, why are you not on the accelerator getting the hell out of there? Um, yeah, it's, it's a different it's a different thing. And, and the other thing just further i tell my guys this all the time that any deadly force policy that you're operating under or you know defensive life policy you know it says you can use force up to deadly force that doesn't mean you have to use your weapon you could use a vehicle you could use your phone you could use a screwdriver i don't give a damn right it, it but they all think no i have to use a gun no you don't you know you can use that force why can't you use a hammer right and, and just try to get their mind to start thinking differently. I think we've all seen those, you know, the, the high speed training videos, right. Where you're doing, uh, you know, vehicle interdictions and, and shoot, like you said, shooting from a vehicle or, uh, all those different types of things. I mean, those make great videos to sell a course, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? The guy, people see that and they're like, I want to learn how to do that. And, I mean, but I think from a training perspective, what you're saying is, you know, maybe it's okay to have some of that information and some of that training in there, very, very limited, but people have to understand that's not the job. I mean, that's, that's something that you may do in training to, you know, to maybe have fun on the last afternoon of the month or whatever, uh, you know, to, to give somebody a little carrot to, to work towards till, to the end of the course. But those are the types of things that, you know, they're really not going to be applicable when it comes down to it. Yeah. The other thing, I don't want to be hypocritical here. I mean, I did that. I ran the FBI's protective school and we did these drills because we were practicing transfer drills, you know, the limos down, you're transferring to the follow vehicle, you're under duress. But it also had to do with where you're operating. You know, we were operating in some pretty tough environments sometimes, not all the time, but we did go to some places that were, you know, a little bit difficult. But, you know, when you're talking about just straight America, you know, CEO type protection, you know, I, I doubt very, very seriously you're, you're running a two car motorcade and you're going to be doing a you know transfer drill under duress uh, like firefight. It's just to me, not very realistic. Um, like I always say, it's kind of cool, but probably not realistic. Um, so I, I like to focus more on, you know, get on the gas pedal, go forward, go backward get off the X, you know, and then treat medically, you know, and that's always a, a big hole in, in a lot of close protection training is a medical. I mean, not for us, but, you know, a lot of programs I've, I've looked at, you know, and, and that's one of the most important possible things you could learn. You're right. It's completely different. If we're talking, 
law enforcement officers transitioning into private security executive protection roles. That's one thing. But a lot of the stuff that you see where you have those types of that high speed training, those are those are operations and and those are uh, roles that are being fulfilled in places like the Middle East or South America. And a lot of those times, those people doing those executive protection details are former tier one operators um, and and military guys. So there's there is a huge difference. and, And maybe you could shed a little bit more light on the difference in executive protection roles as it relates to what you guys do. And then as it relates to, to those other types of overseas deployments. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, obviously we recruit very, very heavily from the U S police forces, military police, and we're you know actively recruiting now. Um, and, and the reason we like to, to hire police officers and, and the reason a lot of police officers retire or just separate and then go into EP is because there are some skills that easily translate into EP, right? You're, you're physically fit. You're mentally aware. You're, you're have really good situational awareness. You know, you can talk to people like all these things that make an officer a really good police officer. All these things are great to be an EP agent, but the single overriding biggest thing I want cops to remember when, at least when they come to our school is that your mission has changed, right? I am paying you and the principal is paying us to do what cover an evac. Get the principal away from the problem. Well, that's a very different thing for a police officer who spent his entire life or her entire life uh, doing what's, you know, what I call identify and arrest, right? Identify the crime, arrest the bad guy, which is a very offensive mindset. You know, go find the guy, put him in bracelets, double lock it, take him to jail. Well, you know, a lot of times in the EP world, especially private, I want you to take the principal and get him the hell out of there. No conflict, no confrontation, nothing. And that's a mindset shift, right? And when I do like audits of executive protection programs outside of my firm, uh, you know, a lot of times I see, you know, they're former police officers, which is fine. And I always ask them the question, hey, when did you learn close protection? And then, you know, hopefully I hear, well, I went to this school or that school, which is great. But a lot of times I hear, well, I was a police officer for 25 years. Well, that's not an answer. Okay. What I know is you've got 25 years of experience, but when did you learn how to make cover and evacuation your primary responsibility? And then you see, Mm -hmm. you see their look on their face go, well, but you know, like, Hey man, it's fine, but you do need to get some training in the mental side of this and how it's changed. Your mission is different. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it comes down to that. You're, and and like I always tell people, I, I'm not a police officer. So, but I've obviously interviewed and I talk with hundreds of officers and trainers and, and military members when, when we talk. And because of my military experience, we always talk, you know, engage the threat. You know, if, if, if something happens, it's if you're a police officer getting responding to a call, if you're in the military and you're on an operation, you have your objective and your objective is to end the threat and to kind of gain control of that situation. And at, like you had said, that's what a lot of people uh just result resort back to right it's well if somebody's if there's an active threat that's coming at me and my principal then i have to engage that threat and take care of it whereas it's hard to get people to think is there a safer smarter way to avoid this altogether can we get in the car and just drive away with without me dealing with this person is that an option you know and that and like you said that's all mindset that has to that has to be and and that's hard to train (laughs) like that's super hard to train yeah we see it every month you know we run a drill in our academy where you know, I'm not going to say when it is because maybe one of your listeners will come to our school. But, you know, if you if you I put them in a scenario and if they go to their weapon because we give them, you know, a, a simulate a, a, a simulation weapon, if they go to the weapon, they're going to they're going to lose. Right. But if they go to the principal and evac evacuate, they're going to win. Right. And, and that teaches them very, very quickly. You know, hey, I probably made the wrong choice here um, because it's a different mindset. It's a completely different mindset. Um, but once they make that shift, Hey man, that's great. And, and, you know, again, we love hiring police officers. Um, and, and, you know, we pay more and it's, it's a far better quality of life. I mean, I was out there, you know, on the street for five years and you're dealing with really, really the lowest of the low versus, you know, with us, you're dealing with the, you know, the top 1%, you know, very nice people, very professional. Um, it's a lot better work environment. 
Most of them anyway. Most of them. I mean, I, I have no complaints. I mean, we, we're very, very fortunate. You know, I mean, I, they're, you know, they're just, they're human beings, you know, and I think it's you or me or anyone, if, if you had a PSD, you know, it, it's difficult. I mean, it, you're doing life, you know, a good friend of mine, Byron Rogers, he runs a good podcast. He, he says, you know, you're doing life with these people and you really are. And, and it's a relationship. And, you know, they, for the most, I've had really very, very, uh, been very fortunate very kind people you know they just want to be protected and um and you do that you know and also the other thing is for people listening whenever i hear somebody say you know i especially when it comes to politics you'll hear people say well i could never protect so and so i wouldn't take a bullet for so and so well you know what that's really not the mindset that that you know that i'm looking for i mean it isn't about their politics. You know, it's about the job and the job is I'm protecting another human being from harm, period. You have to be above the political crap, you know, and you have a job to do and you can't let the, you know, that type of stuff really enter into uh, your mindset in my mind. Yeah, I a hundred percent agree. I can, you know, it kind of brings me back to when people always ask, like, I haven't done a ton of executive protection or close protection stuff, but maybe, you know, a dozen or so, uh, you know, types of concerts with, you know, the celebrities and while they're in town and from, from the time they get in to the time they exfil out those types of things, everyone's like, Oh, how, how was it working with that person? And I, what do you, what do you mean? Like, well, it, wasn't it really cool to meet them? Did you get their autograph? And I'm like, no, dude, I, I didn't get, the, I don't care who they are. That's not like, you know, I'm there to do a job. I have a mission. I completed my mission. That's it. Like that's, and it's hard to, and sometimes I guess it takes a certain type of person to be able to, to flip that switch and be like, okay, I'm at work now. Yeah. Right. Doesn't matter if you, if you know that person, you've been following them your whole life and you're like, oh, they were always on my bucket list to meet this person. Well, guess what? If you're working, that that all has to go out the window because you have a job to do. Well, that's part of being a professional, you know, and I think our industry, you know, more than maybe any others, you know, we would we really don't do ourselves any favors when you see, you know, people posting pictures of themselves with a celebrity that are supposed to be protecting, you know, and I see it and I, you know, I think I understand, you know, maybe why they're doing it to get publicity for them or, or whatever, but it's really, you know, obviously it's not good for our, for our industry um, because you're trying to develop trust with someone and, and you know, things like posting online uh, that doesn't develop trust. It develops distrust. And, and that is not, you know, not really doing us any favors. Um, that's why I'm happy that we, we don't talk about our clients. We have a, you know, 50 year confidentiality agreement with Gavin and, and it's by design, you know, we're, we're trying to develop trust and, and that trust comes from, you know, being discreet, being professional, not talking about your work or who your clients are, you know? You know, I, I want to get into some of the training aspects, um, and especially from your background. And I want to jump into that. But first, I want to bring up something that I saw, which was really interesting. So everybody who listens to this podcast knows that I'm a big proponent of communicating and developing a network on LinkedIn. I think it's awesome, um, especially for our community right now. I think it's a great way to go. Uh, but I want, I saw a post on there from one of your employees, um, and it was about... And it, I don't know if it was maybe I don't know if it was you that posted it or one of the other people that I have on there. But um, essentially, uh, Gavin had sent out a care package uh, due to this whole COVID-19 thing with some N95 masks and a personal note. Um, and I think it really speaks to developing culture um, within an organization. And I mean, I think that's also important when you're talking about agencies and departments and, and just leadership in general. Um, what was, what was that all about? Like, can you, can you give us a little bit of insight to that? Yeah, that was my post. Um, I actually, uh, I got a FedEx package and when I opened it, um, there was, there was four of those N95 masks with a note from Gavin saying, I know that you have a house of four people to include you. I want to make sure you're protected. And that went out to every single employee of the firm, which, you know, I always talk about, you know, leadership and, there's really great schools out there to teach leadership, but at the end of the day, it really comes down to that one word and that's care. You know, do you really care about your people? And it has to be shown and not talked about, right? Like you can't say, Oh, I really care about you, Adam. You have to prove to Adam through your actions that you care about him and, and things like getting that 
you know, an N95 mask, which are hard to come by these days, uh, you, you can't put a price tag on that. And that's just part of, of him and, and the firm and, and kind of how we operate. You know, it's, um, it's, a, it's, it's a strong, strong reason why I left the FBI is to join something very, very special and to be part of, you know, him and the care that he shows for his employees. I mean, it, again, it's, it's action, not words. And yeah, it was really cool to, to get something like that. I'm really interested with with the company dynamic because I mean, uh, from my understanding, Gavin DeBecker isn't a doesn't have a history in law enforcement or the military. He comes from an academic background, and yet this company has been developed, and he has been able to procure some of the top experts, including yourself from from the law enforcement and military backgrounds, and you guys have pretty much put together a cadre of senior leadership and instructors that is second to none with your company. And it really leads into the quality of product that you put out, but also the quality of training that you guys have when you train executive protection agents. Can you talk a bit about the the culture and, and how it was created and then how that flows into developing the next generation of executive protection officers? Sure. The, uh, this great, great segue uh, into him. It, it's so interesting because I always ask this question of our of our students. I say, like, who was Gavin? You know, was he Navy SEAL? Was he Delta operator? He he wasn't. Like you rightly said, he he was an individual who really you know had a terrible background, a terrible terrible childhood, which kind of you know really you know lent uh, kind of moved him into protecting human life. I mean, if you get real with it. And most of your listeners who, if they're in the protective industry or even military or police probably came from a broken home, a lot of them. Um, and cause there's something inside us that, you know, we want to make things right. That's what it comes down to. And so he, you know, he started this, basically what he did in the seventies, he looked around, you know, kind of Hollywood and he saw like who was doing protection. And it was mostly, you know, like uh, former NFL players or former police officers or whatever. And he really just kind of looked around and said, you know, I think I can do a better job. And that's what he did. He just started with one client and then he just he, 40 years later, you know, we are what we are. But really, it, it all comes down to his basically, you know, ferocious um, desire for for things to be the absolute best, right? And, and don't just say it, but do it, right? Like the getting the N95s, uh, it's action, right? Show me, like let's see it. And um, and our firm is a meritocracy. You know, like you you might get here because of what you did before, but you will get promoted based on your merit. You will get, you know that is not based on how long you've been like in the government we could only get you know a pay raise if you've been in long enough a longevity type of uh, reward system well with us it's all based on merit and that's you know one of the very great things about the firm and back to the training piece i mean i got exposed to them to gavin when i was teaching FBI agents tactics and running the FBI protection school. And I was using the book, you know, Gavin's known for the gift of fear, but there's another really great book called just two seconds. And that book is a study by Gavin and Tom Taylor, who uh, has passed away. Great, great man. And a guy named Jeff Marquardt. And, and they studied over 2000 attacks on personnel and they, they found out a lot of very, very interesting things. And that training in that book really drew me to the firm. And I actually started to use one of those drills called time and distance in the FBI training. And then I went out to LA and I met the head of training for Gavin, a guy named Bill Duchesne, who's still there, very, very impressive man. Um, and, and I watched the training and and Adam, it, it was like I was home, you know, because it was the type of stuff that I would have loved to be able to do at the FBI, but they would never have allowed it because, you know, it's it, it's a little bit dangerous. So I'm sure if your listeners have read the book, they know that like we use attack dogs and we use attack dogs, canine, uh, German Shepherds or, or Malinois for what's called stress inoculation training. Well, it it's a great training mechanism. It's scary and it's dangerous, but it's a great way to get someone to accomplish a task under fear, right? Because like I said in a post one time, you know, the dog doesn't know it's training. Like he's coming with everything he's got. 
<laughs> in the FBI, you know, you would be training with your partner and, and he's not going 100 percent. Right. He's 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 pulling his punches and, and those types of things. Well, that dog ain't pulling anything. He's coming. And Gavin said, I'd like to use a mountain lion if I could. And, and you're like, what? <laughs> yeah. Like he was dead serious. He wanted to just take yeah. get the claws off of it and get his teeth removed, but use a mountain lion because that would really scare you. Right. And, and that those types of approaches to to this were like, holy crap, you know, because it was real. You know, and I'm a really strong believer in accountability and, you know, it's got to be real or it doesn't matter. And, um, you know, a lot of that comes from 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 my own background in, in police. And, and, you know, and I saw kind of the effects of of that out there on the street. Um, and so, yeah, we were very, very happy with how we do things and, and why we do things. And almost like a pilot's checklist, the, the reason we do what we do in training is because it's happened. Right. And we or we've made a mistake or someone else has made a mistake and we learn from it and we want to be better because of it. And the other thing is we we're lucky to have two two protectors you know, out and about. So it's really up to maybe one, maybe two. If you're lucky, well, that one or two has to be very, very good. They have to be physically strong, mentally, you know, very, very quick. They have to be very, very smart. And they already have to be thinking about, you know, distance dimensions geometry like all of the things we teach them because they don't have a platoon of people right there's not a 12-man detail like you have in the government and, and just frankly if you have a 12-man detail then you all don't have to be really that great because you've got more eyes on the problem you know and you can get a little bit you know but when you only have one man that person's got to be really really good and that's why our training is you know, as difficult as it is. And I mean, to me, it's refreshing. It's refreshing in 2020 that you have an organization where if we say, you know, you, you take a physical fitness test and if you fail it, you get fired. Well, we're serious about that, right? Because we promise the client will give them a physically prepared protector. We're not playing, you know, and, and there's accountability. And I didn't see a lot of that in the government. So I think it's great. I think that brings up a lot of really interesting points. The first one being that and this is something I always hark on with every time I, every time I get a chance to on the, on the podcast, it's getting knowledge outside of your bubble. So stepping outside of your bubble and getting knowledge from other areas, um, which I think is really, I mean, and also plays into what you had said is it's, it's different when you're in law enforcement, when you're in the military, you know, there's a lot of guys and girls that, don't take the extra time to learn and train on their own. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in your, in a position or with a company like yours, it's kind of a requirement. Like you're, listen, you're signing up for this. You need to make sure that everything that you do is up to par or above, because if not, you're gone. And it's, and you know, with, you know, with police departments and with the military, it's like, oh, okay, well you failed the PD test. You know, we're going to retest you again next week. Like make sure you get ready for it. It, and, you know, there's there's more of a margin of error where with what you guys do, it's it's not there. There's no margin of error. It's it's you either step up to the plate or you're gone. And go ahead. I was just going to say that, you know, I remember in the FBI where, you know, they would say, hey, the fit test is June 1st or whatever. And I remember agents saying, oh, I, I got to get ready. And I, it would really piss me off because I'm like, no, you can't go get ready. Right. Like you're you're carrying a gun right now. You made an arrest, you know, last week. You, the uh, the criminal's not going to wait for you to go get ready. You got to be ready. Right. Like that body that you're taking to that arrest, that's what you're going to fight with. So that would that really piss me off, uh, especially if there wasn't any accountability to it. You know, and I mean, that's what I, another thing I love about the firm is, you, man, it's every year. If you don't pass it, I'll see you. I mean, and, and everyone everyone's held to that standard there's no you know we, we don't give special dispensation to different people no no it's that's the policy if you don't like it well you know there's other people you can go work for <laughs> yeah <laughs> no for sure i mean i remember i watched a video and i can't remember who had it on their computer as a trainer that i knew was in corrections um and it was basically an in, just a conversation they'd had um and some video of inmates training um, in the jail and they were actively practicing, you know, things like disarms and, and things like that. And, and all they do, and that's all they do, right? Like they're, they're in there 24 seven. So they're working out every day. They're, 
and they and if you don't think that they're not training um to to beat you then you're you're going to be in for a, a rude awakening right i mean those guys that's that's their job there so it's it was really interesting to me just like what you had said when people don't keep it's 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 not like a fitness standard is is one of those things where it's like you said you have to just get ready for it once a year like you should be at or above that standard all of the time and you know because you're expected to function in your role a hundred percent of the time i think from a training perspective that can be hard to instill in a student right it's hard as a trainer to say, Hey, listen, I'm going to work. You know, I have this 40 hours with you. I have this week with you, but I want you to continue doing this every day for the rest of your life. And they're like, uh, what? No, <laughs> you know, how do you do? You, is there something actively built into the way that your trainers relate to the students and the, the students that come through your school that kind of instill that need to continue that lifelong learning, that lifelong training? Yeah, I think a lot of it has to come, it comes down to the harshness of it. And and what I mean by that very specifically is that, so you mentioned guys in prison, right? Guys in prison are in shape because they're in an environment where they have to be in shape at a moment's notice. They could be in a fight for their life, right? Like there's real accountability. I mean, the real kind, right? Like life and death. And so therefore, they don't have a choice. They have to be ready. Whereas, you know, if you're in an environment where there's no accountability, meaning you take the fit test and you fail it, but you don't lose your job, well, it sends a message to every single person, oh, you don't have to pass it because there's no accountability, right? And so what happens is, you know, organizations just deteriorate. It's what they call a slow fade. It doesn't happen overnight, but it, the culture is, oh, no one cares. You know, not a big deal. You don't have to pass it, right? Well, if you have that type of culture, then it's, it's – and I'll give you a very specific example. Uh, currently in the FBI, if you want to get a 50, which is the best you can get on your PRT, you have to do pull-ups, okay? But if you don't want a 50, you don't have to do pull-ups, but you can still pass, Okay. Now you you just figure that one out, all right? All right. <laughs> optional, right. optional testing, right. yeah. And so, I, for us, you know, you have to pass it, and if you don't, you lose your job. That's called accountability, right? And that sends a message to everybody: Hey, man, I got to stay in shape. Now, do we do things like you know allow our protectors to have a, a kettlebell in their workspace? Yes. Do we do things like um, you know almost on a daily basis we're sending out workouts that we're doing throughout the firm? Yes, we do things like that. Um, do we have a, a, an environment that basically breeds you know a lot of you know Hey, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you working out? You know what what are you are you doing TRX? Are you doing CrossFit? Are you you know, what are you doing? Right. Like that's part of our culture. Um, but it also comes down to the reality that I know I have to be in shape because my job depends upon it, period. You, you know, so a lot of people say, oh, yeah, our folks are in shape. But then I always ask, well, how do you test to it? And if they say, well, we don't test to it, you just what you take their word for it. To me, it, it's not real. It's not authentic. Right. And, and that's how we do it. I want to talk about, and just to kind of go back to, uh, because this was something that I was really interested in asking you about. Obviously, I'm very familiar with The Gift of Fear uh, in that book, because I bring it up almost all the time. So every time I do training, um, that that book gets brought up in some way, shape, or form. But when we're talking about building in psychological and physiological responses to stress, and the stress inoculation training that you had mentioned, I mean, there's there's a lot of really interesting ways that trainers and instructors bring that into uh, their training regiments right now, right? We have things like uh, shock knives, stress vests, simunition, um, using CS gas, or things like that. And I don't, I can't think of, in my mind, and I'm I'm trying to just cycle through and Rolodex through. I can't think of any group other than maybe like canine units that actually use the dogs in training and not in a, not in the way that it's used for stress inoculation. Because I mean, I'm, I've been, I've been in one of those suits and I've had one of those fur missiles running at me and I was, (laughs) I almost shit myself um, because that's a scary situation. So why, like, 
why is it that law enforcement agencies don't adapt more intense training if we have a way to mitigate the injuries that can be caused we if if we can accept a, a a standard or accept a certain level of injury whether it be bumps bruises scrapes those types of things why don't we increase that intensity in training why is it that agencies whether it be uh local like federal state provincial whatever it is why don't they do that in in your experience well my personal opinion is it's litigation that's my personal opinion i i think that they're they're very very concerned about being sued for doing some type of training that hurts somebody, and unfortunately, you know that's that's a reality in in the U.S. and and then you you kind of on top of that you have a situation where uh, because of litigation, you know we, we 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 try to regulate primal battle, right? We try to regulate uh, life and death, you know, situations uh, with you know, like use of force continuums. Okay, use of force continuums are they're interesting, um, but unfortunately, what happens and you'll see it over and over and over again is officers are trying to work through the use of force continuum, and they have so many trinkets on their belt they're trying to understand which one do I use, while this guy is still closing the distance. Right, the bad guy is still coming, and he doesn't care about a use of force continuum. He's going to take that screwdriver and he's going to plant it in that officer's chest without any hesitation. Whereas our officers, not all of them, but a lot of them, are trying to you know go through the steps of that continuum that has been beat down the, you know their throat, and they want to make sure they're not going to get sued. And you can watch it over and over and over again in police videos. The the worst, of course, that I've seen is like you know like. Kyle Dinkiller, uh, the, the officer in Georgia, you know, he lost his life and he's wor- trying to work through the force continuum with a, a Vietnam veteran who is just hell bent on killing Kyle. And it's a terribly tragic thing to watch. Um, but that's to answer your question. I mean, to me, it's a lot of it has to do with litigation. You know, it has a lot of if, you, if someone gets hurt during training, you know, everyone's going to get sued. And, and, and unfortunately, we, we need people to to say, hey, look, I'll accept the fact that we might get somebody hurt in training, but it's going to be worth it in the long run, right? Um, And some organizations can do that and some just don't. That's just the reality. It's really interesting to me when we talk and you bring up use of force continuums, uh, because this has come up multiple times on the the podcast before, but when we talk use of force, I I think you're exactly right when you say, you know, officers have all of these thoughts that go through their minds when it's like, am I going to get in trouble for doing this? Like, is this going to be on the news? Am I going to get fired? All these types of things that they shouldn't have to think about. Right. Um, well, I just wanted to say like a one round shooting, right? Like I, I did a lot of shooting review stuff for the FBI. Um, but if you see a, an officer involved shooting where he fired one round or she fired one round, um, what that tells me is it, it was either an oh crap moment, right? Because by and large, from a pistol, you're probably not going to get it done with one round. Okay, you just aren't. And so, what I see when I see a one-round shooting engagement is like an "oh crap, I hope that worked." Oh God, I don't want to get in trouble. You know, and that's why, like, if anyone's listening and their police department's doing like a course of fire where it's one round and holster, please don't do that. You know, please don't do that. If you've met if you've met the you know, deadly force threshold and you can press a, the trigger on a guy, well, shoot a lot. Right. Get get on that trigger. Uh, that's why I don't like one round shooting strings uh, in courses of fire, because it, it, more than likely with a pistol, you're not going to get it done. You're not going to eliminate that threat. So, you know, mm-hmm. start pressing the trigger. But a lot of times you'll, you'll just see it's it's one round and, you know, they missed or they they hit him in the knee or I don't know. It, it's, it's unfortunate versus your tier one guys that you were talking about earlier. They don't fire one round. You know, they're they're, <laughs> they're dumping into a guy. I think that's a really interesting point that you just made is that there's really, there's no difference if you're firing one round or you're emptying a clip. That's right. It's, you know, if you're, if you're, if you've passed that threshold and you have to use lethal force, then use it and don't half-ass it. And it kind of comes back to the same thing too. When we're teaching, you know, if we, even if we're doing defensive tactics training, here's an expandable baton. We're not teaching people to take half swings 
because it's useless. If you're going to swing the baton, swing it as hard as you possibly can so that its maximum effectiveness is reached. There's no point in, in hitting, just tapping somebody with it 30,000 times. That's exactly right. That's, you know, and that's, that's about commitment. That's really about not pulling punches, going a thousand percent. Like I was talking about that dog. You know, that's why we love the dogs because they're coming with everything they got. And it's going to, like you said, it, it does scare the hell out of you because those things are not playing. Right. And that's what you need. And if you've ever been, you know, in, in a bad situation, you know, that guy, he didn't, he doesn't care. You know, there's, there's a hollowness. I call it going to that really, really dark spot you know, or that dark place. You know, I mean, there's the soul is basically gone. He's trying to take you off the grid and you have to match that degree of, you know, you know, it's dark. And a lot of folks maybe can't get there. You know, and that kind of brings us into one of the points that I know you wanted to talk about, which was commitment. And you had mentioned commitment when it comes to training and and gears and weapons and stuff like that. But where does that commitment come into play when it doesn't matter if you're a law enforcement officer or if you're doing executive protection or security? But when you step into that role, I mean, your commitment has to be there 110 percent, right? Yeah, you you can't really, um, at least in my opinion, if you're going to you know carry a weapon for a living in law enforcement or private sector or the military, you've really kind of given up uh, the right to, for instance, be complacent. You've you've kind of given up the right to to be out of shape. You, you really have. You know, you have to kind of you know change your entire makeup. And what I what I mean by that, like you have to dress differently. Right. You have to buy some clothes that are bigger so that they can conceal that weapon. You, you have to think about it from a very professional standpoint. And, and you can't, you know, like you have to be committed to this thing. And what I mean by that is I'll ask questions like, hey, um, when was the last time you practiced drawing from concealment? And they just look at you like, well, what do you mean? Or you'll see folks go to a, a shooting school, and, and they won't use the, the holster that they always use on duty. They'll use some high-speed thing. Well, wait a minute. Are, are you running a tactical rig when you're out working? Well, then why are you doing it in training? You know, you need to be training the way you actually carry, right, and with the weapon you actually use. Don't change weapons up, right? Don't use a shoulder holster if that's not how you, you, know, you train. You know, and that to me is what I'm talking about in commitment. You know, how many times do you just draw and dry fire? You know, I mean, I'm dry firing three or four times a week. I'm not even in the government anymore, right? But because I want to make sure I, I keep my skill up because I'm committed to it, right? And if you put in that type of training and work and mental preparation, if God forbid that day comes, you'll be far more apt to be successful than, you know, relying on luck, okay? Like, I don't mind luck. Luck's fine, but I'm not going to use it as, you know, um, the only way to get through something. Um, and so, I, mm-hmm. so I think people need to be committed and, and they have to be held accountable. And when you have no accountability, then you'll see that they're not committed to, you know, to the life, if you will. Um, and that's, that's, that's what I mean. I, I think it's, it's a very, very serious thing to carry a weapon for a living and you have to be very good with it. You know, you just, you, you have to really, really practice and commit and, and shoot and, and move and, and do all of these things that you need to be doing if you're going to carry a gun for a living. I, yeah. And I think it comes down to mindset. You know, I'd mentioned I'd, I had a, a few different people on the show, guys like Doc Mike Simpson he carries around, I think he was, when we had our conversation, I think he said he carries usually three to four tourniquets on him at any given time. <laughs> like, just just because, I mean, he's obviously, A, he's trained to use them, and that's it, like, that, that was his thing. But at the same time, it's always being prepared and always being ready. And having that mindset that you should always be ready for for the unexpected. And I think that's that's key to to anything. It doesn't matter if you're law enforcement, security, military, first responders. It's, you know, we always, you know, they always say train for the worst so that you're prepared for the best or be prepared for the worst. Because in in this line of work, there's a good chance that that may happen. Yeah, it's always terrible to see like a, a you know an officer who's been involved in a shooting. And I've seen a lot of these where he or she will say, you know, I can't believe this happened to me. And, and I always say, well, why wouldn't it happen to you? Now, that, that's, that is kind of 
I'm not saying you signed up for it, but that is definitely, you know, I always equate it to a fireman complaining about the smell of smoke. Well, that's the job. Why would, why would you be, you know, surprised that this happened to you? You need to be very, very, you know, comfortable with violence. And you also have to be, you know, fully expecting that violence is going to be visited upon you. You know, that's the job. It just is. Um, and, 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 you know, mentally, it speaks to your mental, where are you mentally? Are you mentally prepared to do what needs to be done? You know, and, it, and that, again, comes back to commitment. You know, you're going to carry a gun for a living, then mentally you got to be prepared to use it. Um, now, obviously, I, I'd like you to try to avoid these things if you can. But if you can't, then you need to go to work, you know, and you need to go to that really dark spot and, and do what needs to be done and come out on the other side. Um, and I just don't think you know, a lot of folks are ready for that. I had a, I have an interesting question that just kind of came into my mind as I was thinking about what you're saying with training and, um, you know, why would you take something to training that you're not using in the field? That was something that I've always kind of said when we're doing defensive tactics training. I've always had people show up and you know, it's like, wear your duty boots, wear your pants, wear your belt, wear your shirt when you come into training. Don't come in here with uh, like running shoes and shorts and a t-shirt because that's not what you work in. Like you're not, you're not going to get a realistic feedback, that neuro-linguistic feedback to your body. And and you're not going to know the restrictions of what you're, what you're doing if you're not wearing what you wear when you're going to need it. Um, which is interesting because I'm trying to think now that with, especially with your, you know, the EP guys that you have, I mean, a lot of them do very like high profile and a lot of them wear suits and stuff like that. I'm thinking it might be really expensive to have guys come in and do training in suits all the time. <laughs> so that was just something funny that popped into my head. So how do you guys combat that with, with your training? Yeah. I mean, we don't do anything that's not from concealment. You know, you have some, you know, kind of throwaway old like Salvation Army coats and stuff that we can use. Um, and that's, you have to kind of, and, and like we, if you make it through the training with us and we offer you a job, like we have, we have a tailor that comes in and gets you fitted for your suit, but you'll get fitted for the suit with your vest on and all your gear. Right. I mean, period. And that's, that's how we do business. Um, but you know, one of the, the, the things that I, I really think your listeners should think about is, is, you know, it, if they are training with their gear, the way they wear it, you know, like we used to, in the FBI, we used to do like a, a course of fire where you do 10 burpees and then run to the 15 yard line and then shoot the string. Well, what would happen is after the 10 burpees, you know, guys would have crap laying all over the, the firing line because stuff fell out when they were doing, you know, the burpee. And it, it tells them very, very quickly, hey, man, I, I probably have the wrong gear or the wrong, you know, magazine holder or the wrong, you know, knife or whatever the hell they had that's, you know, laying back at the 25-yard line. Um, you know, that that's a, it's a really good drill to do. Pat McNamara, I don't know if you watch any of his stuff, but, I mean, he, he's, mm-hmm. he's fantastic. And one of the things Pat does all the time is he'll do box jumps with all of his gear on right and and he'll do 10 box jumps and then he'll pull out you know his is you know what they call everyday carrier edc and and he's got it all on him and it's still there where it was when he started doing the jumping um so that's about commitment that's about you know training the way you actually carry with the stuff that you actually have um you know not what you hoped it would be later on down the road no what you actually have um and that comes you know that that also speaks to your physical preparation because that body that you have right now is what you're going to fight fight with um and i hope you're training you know for that one thing before we jump into cuz i want to i want to talk about transitioning uh, from law enforcement into the civilian side of things. And for guys that are maybe interested in, in doing executive protection work or getting into private security and things like that, I want to talk to you about that. But is there any kind of last things about training that are kind of top of mind for you right now that you're thinking like, hey, this is, you know, now that we've been talking about it, this is one other thing that I really think officers need to know? I, th- I think especially when it comes to using deadly force. I used to train FBI agents in tactics at Hogan's Alley, and you would see a, a lot of folks who weren't committed to using, you know, using that degree of force. And what I mean by that is, instead of an ask-tell-make situation where they ask the person to do something, then they tell them to do something, then they make them do something, it was an awful lot of ask, 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 and saying the words please, please, please. Listen to me. If you tell a guy. Hey, turn around, put your hands on your back, and he doesn't do it, then you need to be prepared to go to the next level. 
And unfortunately, what you see, I think, a lot are officers who continually ask the guy, please, sir, please, sir, or, or the, the, they veil threat. Veil threat meaning they say, if you don't do X, I'm going to do Y. And when they, you know, when he doesn't comply, they don't do Y. So then they lose credibility. And the minute they start to lose credibility, that guy goes, hey, I can take this person. Right. So I always I always beg officers, if you tell somebody to do something and they don't do it, by God, make them do it. Right. Because if you don't, then you're going to start to lose credibility. And then this encounter is going to start to go very, very bad for you. So, you know, and, and don't apologize. That's another thing I hate to see. Don't apologize for doing your job. Don't tell a guy you're sorry you have to arrest him. No, he should be sorry for violating the law. But, you know, I think that's kind of the biggest thing is, you know, you know, take control of the situation and then do what you tell them you're going to do. It's funny that you say that. I've been using that in training for a long time where I say, if you tell somebody you're going to do something, you better be ready to do it. Right. right? If you say, hey, either you do this or I'm going to take you to the ground, you, be- you better be ready to, to throw that guy on the ground because if you're not, you're going to be in for a world of hurt when he realizes that you're you're just blowing smoke. That's exactly right. I think that's really funny. I, it's encouraging to hear that from another trainer, another person who's been through it because I think that's super important for instructors and trainers that are listening to this and, and making sure that that's built into your training as well, right? If you're Or if you're recognizing that people are doing that in training, that you hold them accountable to the words that are coming out of their mouth. Because at the end of the day, if you're in law enforcement, I mean, you're every, everything here is everything now is recorded. It doesn't matter if you have a body cam or a dash cam or, you know, the bystander with their cell phone, everything you say is being recorded. So you are, you're held accountable to the words that come out of your, your mouth more so now than ever. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. But they, again, going back to the guys you were talking about who were in prison practicing weapon takeaways, you know, they're sizing you up. They're sizing you up from the minute that encounter begins, whether it's a car stop or, you know, a call, a, a domestic, they're sizing you up immediately. How you wear your gear, what kind of shape you're in, how you talk to somebody, whether you sit down or not. I mean, you look at them directly with your eyes. I mean, they are sizing you up no different than what animals do. I mean, it's the same thing. And, you know, you need to project strength and don't back, you know, if you say you're going to do something, you got to do it. Because if you don't, they're going to start looking for ways to, you know, to take advantage of you. I actually had a really interesting conversation with somebody and they had mentioned that, you know, they had spoken with a, um, a thief and, and what they, this person had done was they sat outside of banks and, and that's how they decided how they were going to, to rob people. Um, and so what they would do is they would sit outside a bank and they'd watch people walk into the bank and walk out of the bank and they'd watch for certain things uh, that were subconscious tells. So, you know, a, a lady walks in and she has her purse just hanging off her shoulder and it's kind of flopping around, bouncing everywhere. She walks in and then 20 minutes later, she walks out and she's clutching it up under her arm. Right. It's psychologically, it's a sign saying, hey, there's something more valuable in there now. And so he's like, that's the person that I would target. Right. Or a man walks in, normally walks out, and every three or four seconds, he's tapping where his wallet is or his front pocket, wherever it is that the cash that he just put, uh, that he just withdrew, where it's going to be. It really speaks to the level of sophistication that, you know, we may not recognize is that we're training super hard to be able to to do our jobs effectively and to, to enforce the laws and to arrest the bad guys. But they're training just as hard to be effective at what they're doing, and they're very, very, very good at it. Yeah, I used to always say to FBI uh, trainees, like, don't think for one second, don't think for one second that you're the only people's practicing, okay? Like, I remember we used to bring in a, a guy to train FBI uh, SWAT people, and he was like the best shotgun guy, one of the best in the country, and I think he was a forklift operator, right, like for a living. He drove a forklift, but he was one of the best shotgun guys in the country, like Olympic level, right? And, and he would talk about how much he practices, right? He would practice loading and unloading, loading and unloading. And I would always say to my students, if this guy drives a forklift for, for a living and he's practicing, right, he's practicing loading and unloading, you know, what are you doing, right? That isn't even his primary job. So you better be doing as much, if not more, than he is. You know, like how often are you practicing magazine reloads? How often are you dry firing? You know, like that 
really hits home to them when they're like, oh, my God, this is my job and this guy's doing more than me and he's not even in law enforcement, you know. And it's it's obviously a lot different in the U.S. than it is anywhere else because of the the prevalence of of the gun culture in the United States. But I mean, firearms are prevalent in the U.S. Mm. and, you know, there's there's so many people that have them. And if you think that they're not, it's interesting. You know, I have I know people that, you know, they have their firearms that are issued and they only go out and they shoot what they're required to shoot, whether it be qualifications or training days. And that's it. And then they don't shoot any other time. You know, you can you can almost bet that people that are going to be trying to use these firearms against them are shooting just as much, if not more than you are, um, which is a scary concept. That's right. That's right. One thing I did want to talk about is I, I was really excited to speak with you because there's a lot of officers and trainers that are listening to this that either a are nearing the end of their uh their end of their run and they're going to be retiring out soon or they may be considering actually switching gears and doing something outside of law enforcement or the military and in, into more of the uh, civilian contractor side of things can we talk for a second about that transition? And for those that want to get involved in things like executive protection, whether they maybe want to come work with you and your company or other companies that do the same thing, what are some things that they need to know before they start considering that as a possibility? I always ask them, you know, are you ready to kind of hang it up? And, and, and they know what I mean by that statement. You know, a lot of guys and girls, they really love the work. They love the badge. They love the the authority. You know, they love making arrests. That's a lifestyle, right? And, and I always ask, are you ready to give that up? And, and some people are and some people are not. Some people go, hey, you know, I've hit a point in my career where I'm done or, uh, you know, I'm just I'm not into it anymore or I want to make more money or whatever. And I, I always ask that question. If they are ready, then I always say, OK, then what you need to do is find a company that really kind of supports, you know, what, what you're about. Right. And so go work for someone that, that Maybe you like the product they make. Maybe you like their culture. Uh, maybe it's Disney and you really like how Disney does things and you want to work there. That's fine. But kind of target a company that kind of has the mindset that you have. And then once you get there, you know, get some training. So if you come to us, we'll train you. If you go to a, another uh, a protection firm, hopefully they'll train you. But get some training and then start to practice your craft. Uh, and then always kind of, this is the big thing, is even though they're in a corporate environment now, which is far different than the police department, please don't ever second guess or discount your experience. And what I mean by that is, yes, it might be different. It, you know, the, the way they speak or the corporate model might be different, but to please don't, when they say to you, hey, what do you think we should do when it comes to safety, security, protection, please don't you know, get timid because you're in an environment you're not used to. Please understand, you know, you have a great deal of experience as a policeman. You understand security. Give them an answer, right? And don't be afraid to tell the truth, right? Say the truth. Um, and that's what they want. That's what they're paying you for, right? They want to hear what you have to say. Now, they may or may not act upon it, but please don't, you know, don't get quiet. Right. And I see a lot of that. I see a lot of people who have great experience, but they're in a different environment. And then they, for some reason, you know, they, they shut up and they, they just listen and they let someone in corporate America tell them how to do security. It, and they don't know anything about it, you know, and, and, and that's the big thing is, is, you know, it's a great transition. I love it. I'm glad I did it. Um, but, but don't be afraid to speak when you know you need to. And, and even though it's different, you know what you know. Right. Like they brought you here for a reason. So don't discount that. It also sounds like, you know, for just in, in just in the short time we've talked, it also sounds like if you're looking for uh, a nice relaxing job uh, to take after, you know, retirement or after transitioning out of law enforcement, this may not be the role for you. Um, and that the standard may actually be higher now than it ever has been before. Yeah, it's well, I mean, at least with my company, it, it, it's really you know, these are long days. Um, it, it, it's a lot of travel. It's a lot of time on your feet. It's a, it is hard. It, it really, really is. Um, now you may find a great gig out there where it's not as difficult and, but, um, I, I would tell you by and large, it, it is very, very difficult. And it, like you had, you had alluded to earlier, 
a lot of it is self-motivated, right? Like the police department or the military, you know, they have training, they have huge training budgets and they, they make sure you get your training and they put it on and you're going to get quarterly medical or quarterly defensive tactics or quarterly firearms or whatever the hell. Well, in the private sector, you're not going to see a lot of that. Well, why? Because that's all, you know, that's all overhead. That's all money we got to pay out of our pocket, you know? So you're going to have to find training. You're going to have to get out there and, and, and do it on your own a lot of times, you know, and you may even have to pay for it yourself. Right. And that's a big difference than when you were in the government or the police department. Um, and, and so don't forget that, you know, you may have to seek other things if you want to make yourself better because you have to continually get better. That's the other thing is, you know, when I started law enforcement in 97, I'm sorry, 92, um, my lieutenant said, you know, you, you can learn something new every day. And if you're not learning, you probably need to retire. Right. And, and, and I remember that. And that was great, great advice. And, and I've tried to do that. I try to learn something every day. And that means if I got to pay for it, if I got to buy a book, I mean, I'll do it. Right. Because that's part of getting better. When we talk about what you guys have going on right now, um, so they can where can they visit you the website? So it's uh, GDBA.com. So Gulf Delta Bravo Alpha dot com. And you guys have some training. And one thing that I find really interesting is that you guys actually put on a full academy for people that want to do executive protection. Can can you just talk a little bit about the academy and, and how that's run? Yeah. So every month we're uh, we're running uh, at our facility there right outside of Los Angeles. Um, and if people want to sign up, they can come. We'll train them and then they get, you know, they get a certificate and then they can go back to their life, uh, go back to their company they could we've trained people who are with an you know they're they're doing ep for some corporation they come to our school it's uh six days and then they you know go back home um and they learn from us and and there's nothing different from you know what they're learning versus you know the people that that we're going to hire so you like when you come to the academy you know that's not a guarantee that we're going to give you a job that just means you're we're looking at you you know we're going to give you the training and, and then when it's over We'll see, you know, if it's going to work out or not. Um, but it's still great training. Uh, you still get the stress inoculation with the dogs and the shooting and, and you know, geometry and movement and all those great things, medical, all the things we teach. Um, but, you know, you can go back to where you were. You can use it for later or we could consider, you know, hiring you there on the spot if if it works out. Um, and so that's one of the things we offer. And we also offer, uh, you know, something that I didn't know an awful lot about before I joined the firm, but we have a uh, an advanced threat assessment academy that we run twice a year up uh, at the UCLA Conference Center. Uh, and it's fantastic for individuals that are given that role of threat assessment. And a lot of those are police officers. A lot of them are, you know, retired officers that are working for, you know, a corporation or a university or what have you. And, you know, Gavin kind of pioneered threat assessment 40 years ago, and, and we teach his strategies to the folks that come. And, you know, a lot of officers, you know, like I, I, I was a victim of being told, you know, hey, just recommend a restraining order and move on. Well, maybe that isn't the best recommendation when you're doing a threat assessment case. And we teach people how to do that. Um, that really isn't on the EP side. It, it's really more of a threat assessment uh, school, but really, really good. And I learned I learn an awful lot every time because I teach at it, uh, you know, twice a year. That's awesome. Yeah. And, and I'd love to, I'd love to have you back and maybe we can maybe do something on threat assessment and, and talking more in depth about that, because I mean, that, I think that's something that's useful for everybody, uh, that's in law enforcement is, is learning those skills. I mean, we talk in corporate security, we talk threat assessment all the time, but it's not something that, you know, gets brought up all the time when, when you're on the road or you're on patrol, it's, um, so I think that's a very important skill for, for people to have, or at least information for people to know. Oh yeah. Cause a lot of, you know, officers just don't get that type of training. I mean, in, in, invariably the officer is going to run into a, a woman who's being stalked or, you know, someone who's being harassed and, and they're going to be asked, you know, well, what should I do? And a lot of times the officer really doesn't, you know, maybe know what to say. And, and unfortunately, like I was doing, you know, you might recommend a restraining order or order protection. And, and maybe that isn't the right answer, you know, but I, hell, I didn't know. They didn't teach you that in basic police academy. Um, and so I, that's one of the things I – and from the EP standpoint also, when you're working, you know, threats to a principal, you know, I mean, there are really effective strategies and there are strategies that really aren't that effective. And some of the stuff that I was taught in the government, 
frankly, is not that effective. And that's what we would do. And, and frankly, it's not really that you know, correct um, now that I've been trained properly. And so I think it's, it's, it's very helpful for folks who are involved in executive protection because, you know, they're, they're having to work those threats daily. Absolutely. If, if somebody wants to get a hold of you or, you know, if there's a instructor or trainer in law enforcement out here um, and they want to get a hold and maybe ask you some questions and, and get a little bit more information about what you guys are doing, what's the best place for them to get a hold of you? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn, uh, James Hamilton, and then they can email me. It's uh, james.hamilton at gdba.com. So either one. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of I'm kind of a freak about, you know, responsiveness. And if you, if you send me an email, I'll get right back to you. Um, I just think it's appropriate and proper. Um, so, yeah. That's awesome. And those, uh, I'm going to make sure to link those on the show notes page here. So if you're listening to this, just scroll down to the show notes. Those links will be in there so you can contact James. Uh, listen, man, I really appreciate you taking the time today. I know, uh, I know it's kind of hectic now with everything going on with the pandemic and all that, but, uh, I, I really appreciate you taking the time and I was honored that uh, you came on the show. Thanks for having me and to the officers listening, man, just uh, be safe. Thanks for what y'all are doing out there and, uh, you know, just do what you need to do. Come home safe. All right. That wraps up another episode here on Tactical Breakdown. If you like what you're hearing, if you're enjoying the content and finding it actionable and useful, consider subscribing to the podcast. You're going to stay up to date on all of the current events with law enforcement training around the world. And if you haven't already heard about the International Law Enforcement Training Summit, you need to jump over to ILETSummit.com. Check that out. The live version is done and gone. That took place in July 2020. But you have the ability to get lifetime access to all of the training that's been developed for a very, very, very low price. Make sure to use the promo code BREAKDOWN to save even more. Check that out at ILETSummit.com. Thanks again for being here with us at the Tactical Breakdown. And until next time, stay safe. Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.